Hello. Happy Monday after conference weekend. How many of you have <laughs> survived? How many of you have binge watched every recap that has been made after conference? It's been amazing. And the best thing I like about listening to multiple recaps is that everyone has a different perspective. Everyone caught something differently. And, and you know, that's true with everything. I remember a talk by Sherry Dew once that said um, she had someone come up to her after a speech that she had made. And they said, thank you so much for your words. And she said, what exactly did I say that really touched your heart? And so then the, the lady told her what it was. And she said, you know, actually, I didn't say that at all. And so this was an example that she had of how the spirit touches people differently. And so I don't think I would use that in this case, but definitely people hear things differently. And so what we're going to talk about today is the, well, there were multiple things as you listen that create a physical reaction um, but two talks specifically kind of set me off. Um, one of them was Dallin Oaks's talk. And I've already mentioned that in another podcast that I did. Um, it was just a rehash of the talk that he gave, I think, in April of 2022. It was basically the um, uh, I am determined to get the proclamation to the family um, in canon. It, he, he wants it in the Doctrine and Covenants so badly. And so he has to quote it. And I love the, my favorite part was he acted like he didn't know where it came from. Like, you know, there's this, this scripture that's out there that we really need to pay attention to as if we haven't rehashed multiple times where this came, that he wrote it. He wrote the proclamation <laughs> And so, but he acts like, uh, isn't this amazing? Uh, this revelation that came down. Um, but it was the same old junk that he had said, you know, the year before where he had mentioned that we all have our own free agency. There are three degrees of glory. And if you want to live in the highest degree of glory with your family, with Jesus and, and, um, everyone all together happily tripping through the tulips, then you have to be obedient and you have to follow all the laws. And, and that's fine if you don't. If you don't want to, that's fine. <laughs> but have fun in the T-lestial or the T-restial kingdom. And that's okay. I mean, you do you, right? That was what he was basically saying. And I wanted to, um, it was kind of interesting because President Nelson, Russell Nelson, um, basically said the same thing in his closing words. Uh, what I thought was interesting, though, and I'm going to show this to you now before I get into the meat of the program, what he he quotes Jesus. Now, you guys, please tell me if I missed something, but I'm listening. I'm listening. And I may have I may have turned my head for a brief moment, but I believe he said Jesus said and I quote, and then he quoted Jesus, and then he unquoted. And I was like, did, were you there? What Did, did somebody write that down? I, I, I'm confused where you think you just quoted Jesus. Let me play that for you. And God and his son, Jesus Christ, choosing to live a virtuous life in a sexualized, politicized world, builds faith. 
Spending more time in the temple builds faith. And your service and worship in the temple will help you to think celestial. Okay, let me go to a different one because that was, um, he, he, he got this tagline. And you know this is going to be all over Deseret. I was going to go into Deseret book today and just check the shelves just to see how long it would take to get product on the shelves to purchase that say Think Celestial. I don't know because of the ponderize brouhaha that happened, if they'll actually make t-shirts or mugs or whatever out of it. They'll probably just quote it 50 million times. But let, this is the one I think I wanted you to hear. Listen to this one. Never take counsel from those who do not believe. Oh, no, this is a... Seek guidance uh, from voices you can trust. Yeah, we can trust those voices. Yeah. Who will show unto you the things what ye should do. Okay, well, let's talk about that, right? Uh, not quite sure if the prophets, seers, and re revelators are going to um, show you and tell you the things that you should be doing. Okay. That is, okay, we'll just use that. I don't know where the clip is that I did, but we're, we're going to, speaking of which, from, from Russell Nelson's words, from his mouth, he said, don't listen to those that don't believe. Because if you want the truth, you, you need to listen to the prophets and the apostles. Now, I want to refer you to a talk that was given at BYU. I believe it was in 2017. All right. So we're going to go to that real quick. Just keep in mind what President Nelson just said. All right. And he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light. I'm going to take a different approach on this theme than might be expected by exposing and illustrating some very cunning and effective ways that the wicked one prevents people from progressing and receiving more light. Many gospel principles come in pairs, meaning one is incomplete without the other. I want to refer to three of these doctrinal pairs today. Okay, I'm gonna stop it for just a second. I, I am always absolutely amazed at the power that um, Christians in general give to this God, otherwise known as Satan or the devil. They give this person, personage, whatever it is, deity of some kind, so much power. And it is such a conflicting message that we get because we are told that sometimes the answer to our prayers is from the devil. Sometimes the thoughts that we get in our mind are from Satan. We have to be very careful. And I'm like, how do you know? How would you know with that kind of guidance? So this is what he's talking about. And I love the fact that these the Christian leaders will give Satan more power than God. And how is a mere mortal to decide who it came from, which side it's on. So that's what he's talking about. So let's go back. The first agency and responsibility, mercy and justice and faith and works. When Satan is successful in dividing doctrinal pairs, he begins to wreak havoc upon mankind. It is one of his most cunning strategies to keep people from growing in the light. You already know that faith without works really isn't faith. 
My primary focus will be on the other two doctrinal pairs. First, you already know that faith without works is dead. There is no faith without works. We've already covered that. You already knew that, right? Just wanted to make sure that you already knew that. All right, let's go on. To illustrate how avoiding responsibility affects agency, and second, how denying justice, as it is referred in the Book of Mormon, affects mercy. The Book of Mormon teaches us that we are agents to act and not be acted upon, or to be free to act for ourselves. This freedom of choice was not a gift of partial agency, but complete and total 100% agency. It was absolute in the sense that the one perfect parent never forces his children. He shows us the way and may even command us, but nevertheless, thou mayest choose for thyself for it is given unto thee. Assuming responsibility and being accountable for our choices are agency's complementary principles. Responsibility is to recognize ourselves as being the cause for the effects or the results of our choices, good or bad. On the negative side, it is to always own up to the consequences of poor choices. Except for those held innocent, such as little children and the intellectually disabled, gospel doctrine teaches us that each person is responsible for the use of their agency and will be punished for their own sins. It isn't just a heavenly principle, but a law of nature. We reap what we sow. Logically then, complete and total agency comes with complete and total responsibility. Okay, so I want to just stop right there. Um, I love that he's talking about free agency comes with consequences and that we are responsible for the consequences. I find that very interesting. And that's why I'm showing his talk because he's going to tell us now that we have to be responsible for our behavior. And now remember, remember my brethren, that whosoever perisheth, perisheth unto himself. And whosoever doeth iniquity, doeth it unto himself. For behold, ye are free, ye are permitted to act for yourselves. For behold, God hath given unto you a knowledge, and he hath made you free. One of Satan's most crafty strategies to gain control of our agency isn't a frontal attack on our agency, but a sneaky backdoor assault on responsibility. Without responsibility, every good gift from God could be misused for evil purposes. Freedom, for example, of speech without responsibility can be used to create and protect pornography. The rights of a woman can be twisted to justify an unnecessary abortion. When the world separates choice from accountability, it leads to anarchy and a war of wills. Okay, we're just going to get rid of that. So basically, I love, I love that this is at a BYU. This is a BYU talk. So he's talking to students and he's telling them that their words mean something, that they have to be held responsible for what they say, the way they treat people. They have to be responsible for how they treat people. And I was like, really, really? Why don't you walk across the street or actually drive from Provo to Salt Lake and go into that big building and tell those 15 guys 
that they have to be responsible for their words, that they have to be responsible for who they support and who they back and who they encourage and who they invest in. They are responsible. Now, I don't know if any of you noticed, but President Ballard is right now not being held responsible for his interaction with Tim Ballard. In fact, he gave this little baby primary talk at conference where he basically, I love, I loved it because I just thought to myself, everyone over at um, what used to be the Maxwell Institute, or maybe it's still the Maxwell Institute, but FAIR, um, everyone over there, Patrick Mason, Terrell Gibbons, <laughs> they're all going, no, don't say it, don't say it, no. Yeah, because he said everything that those poor apologetics have been trying to dispute or conflict in some kind of weird, you know, verbal narrative that doesn't exist in the real life. You know, they're trying to say, well, it wasn't really a translation. It was more a catalyst for revelation. But then you've got President Ballard standing up and saying it. He translated the Book of Mormon from gold plates. He went into the grove of trees and kneeled down and received a revelation. And, and he's giving the, what, 1945 or 1948 version of the, of the, the first vision rather than the 19 or 1832, you know, vision. I mean, it was literally a talk given in primary to the young children who are in stage one in their faith journey. And it was like, do you guys, I mean, that, committee for um what is it called the strengthening the the church committee they need to they need to meet with these guys more often and just say this is the stuff that's out there right now it's our, the gig is up everybody's on to us they know what's happening so whatever anyway all right so we're going to talk a little bit about the for me i mean it was what 10 hours of conference this talk bothered me the most. And I think because if we're talking about consequences to our behavior, that words matter and lying and fraud, I think Elder Waddell's talk was the most egregious of all of the talks. It was blatant lies. It was fraud. He start, and I know, and I love I love the, the um, insight that RFM brought when he did his recap. He, I, cause I wasn't even, I, I just got through reading Devil's Gate. So when he started out talking about the Willie Martin handcart companies, I perked up and I did not think anything else, but RFM brought to the attention that this talk was basically about Tim Ballard, that he was, he was, he was basically, punishing and shaming us for putting Tim Ballard up on a pedestal and thinking of him as a hero, like they weren't, okay? And it, it just blows my, like Ballard wasn't thinking of him as a hero. The rest of us are being shamed. RFM brought that, but I, all I heard was the Willie Martin hand car heart company. So let's, let's go here to, um, to this old brother. Okay. And okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you about, um, I'm going to talk to you. Let me skip past here. I'm going to talk to you about brother Waddell's talk. We're going to go through a little bit of what he said, 
And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring on in a YouTube way, I'm going to bring on Lynn Packer. And he did a podcast. It's been a couple of years ago, which talked about fraud and lying for the Lord. And I'm going to introduce Lynn Packard to you. And then I'm basically going to go through Lynn Packard's YouTube video about fraud and how prevalent it is in the church and how common it is with our leaders, starting from the very beginning, starting with Joseph Smith. And I love this quote. It is a, let me see if I can get it up. There we go. The most dangerous liars are those who think they are telling the truth. And that's what we have here. I don't know if they think they're telling the truth. I just think that they think that they are lying for the Lord, that they're trying to keep everything in place and they're just doing the best they can. And they're just, um, they're not lying. I think they think they're eliminating, but regardless. Um, so let's just start out. So, um, so brother, um, um, Waddell started out by talking about the Willie Martin Hancock. Now, let me tell you, let me read to you a little bit from this book, Devil's Gate. It was written by David Roberts, who is the author of quite a few books. Let me see if it says here how many books he has. Oh my gosh. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, at least 19 books. He's the author. And, um, he, the subtitle is Brigham Young and the Great Mormon Handcart Tragedy. And um, it, it, it was written in 2008, or the copyright was in 2008. And um, it's, it's, if you have not read this book, you have to. If you have ever thought of sending your children on one of these Trek adventures, you need to read this book. And if you have already sent your children, you need to repent and read this book. Okay. So um, I'm going to read a little bit from the um, introduction. Let me see if there was, was there an introduction or did it just go right on to, let me just turn to, okay. One of my dog eared pages because there were so many, there's so many things in there. Here's a quote. This is a, just a quote. It says, um, the already embittered Danish sub-captain John Amason resolved to file a formal complaint against the snow prophet, William Kimball, with Brigham Young himself. He apparently did so, for in his secret history, Amundsen writes ruefully, oh, you trusting simpleton. The prophet laughed right in my face. In the immediate aftermath of the Willie Company's arrival, church authorities went out of their way to minimize the tragedy. Millen Atwood, Willie's fanatical second-in-command, rose in the tabernacle a week after the party came in and told a large congregation, we did not suffer much. We had a little bit of snow, but that was nothing. And we had enough to eat as long as it lasted. And when that was gone, you furnished us more. We fared first rate. He, he literally stood up in the tabernacle and gave that recount of these people that had died and suffered. And he made it out like it was no big deal. And when um, Brother Waddell spoke, he basically said he, first of all, he completely put Brigham Young out of responsibility. 
And he said that he, um, when he heard about it, he was shocked and he immediately sent for rescue. And it's like, well, that's not true. So whatever was happening in 18, whatever, 45, 46, 47, whenever it was, um, the same thing where they're repeating a false story to minimize the tragedy that the Willie Martin Hancock company actually was. So he says, um, as for those who wish to blame the prophet instead of his lieutenants, if any man or woman complains of me or my counselors in regard to the lateness of some of this season's immigration, let the curse of God be on them and blast their substance with mildew and destruction until their names are forgotten from the earth. So this is Brigham Young saying, you can't blame me for this. This wasn't my fault. So let me just read to you. Um, here, here's another one. And this is at the very end. He says, the most pernicious of all the myths about the Hancock campaign, a myth still cherished every summer by the throngs of reenactors who flocked to the Mormon Hancock Visitor Center in Western Wyoming, is that because they came to know God, all the tribulations of the saints in the Willie and Martin companies were worth it. That myth effectively annuls the terrible realities of starving to death, of dying from exposure to the cold, of incurring frostbite so severe as to cripple one for life. It is a testament to the power of myth to rationalize senseless evil that many of the saints in the Willie and Martin companies apparently subscribe to that justification for their suffering. Yet not all the victims so believed across the century and a half that separates us from the handcart tragedy a few voices still ring out in protest. John Bond, the 12-year-old in the Hodgetts Wagon Company, conjured up decades, decades later the untold hardships, broken hearts, and so many deaths of loved ones he witnessed along the trail. Whatever was on the agent's minds, he wondered out loud before in vain, the men in high standing with high priesthood power are yet to meet the innocent ones before the bar of God to answer to him for the atrocities of inhumane advice. And it just, I, mean, I know that there's a new book that just came out. It's a trilogy of the, um, the um, Mountain Meadows Massacre, which was also Brigham Young. And it completely... Um, relieves Brigham Young from any responsibility with that. You cannot have a policy that says, we know these men aren't perfect. We know that they're, they're not infallible. Uh, we know that they make mistakes, but then never acknowledge any of the mistakes that they make. You can't have it both ways. You either have to acknowledge that this was a mistake and we're sorry that this happened. Um, he wasn't acting as a prophet. He was acting as a man. You can't you can't say that everything that happened was by was by God's direction and then go, oh, you know, when they're when they're finally forced to admit something happened. Well, they're just men. They're infallible. You cannot have it both ways. So when Brother Waddell started out his talk, forgiving Brigham Young as if he knew nothing about it. And this book, you guys, there's I mean, it would be another hour for me. I mean, I'm already 24 minutes in and I've got to cover um, uh, Lynn Packer. But my point is. The um, the myths and the whitewashing of history has gone on from day one and we're still getting it and people are still falling for it. So let's go past why this was just 
horrendous. So we're going to go to, let me introduce, let me go back. I want to introduce to you, if any of you are, um, if any of you are interested in anything that's going on with, with Tim Ballard, Hey, if you've got all the time in the world, listen to the 45,000 podcasts that are out there. But if you want a simple to understand chronological order, um, recount of what happened with Tim Ballard, search Lynn Packer on YouTube and start from three years ago. He was covering this at least three years ago. So let me see if I could make this a little bit bigger. Okay, so Lynn Packer is an award-winning investigative reporter, television news consultant, and trial consultant. He attended Box Elder High School in Brigham City, graduated from Utah State University in Logan, Utah, with a broadcast journalism major with German language minor. He was editor-in-chief of University of Utah's campus newspaper his senior year and was a radio disc jockey for KBUH in Brigham City and KVNU in Logan. Um, Packer was in, I don't know, why did I cut those words off? In the United States Army between 1968 and 1970 in Vietnam. He was a television news anchor and producer for the Something in Vietnam Network. And in the Shang uh, Tree Detachment, he was awarded the Bronze Star. Packer reported for KSL Television News in Salt Lake City, where he covered city, county, and state government. He did investigative reporting. Uh, somewhere, can't read that word, and hosted a weekly talk show. Among the major stories he covered were the Challenger Space Shuttle disaster, the Mark Hoffman bombing murders, the trial of serial killer Ted Bundy, and the Judge Willis Ritter Corporation scandal. He also served as a consultant for CBS's 60 Minutes. His career spanned 10 years as an adjunct journalism instructor at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah, and the University of Dortmouth in Dortmund, Germany. Packer consulted for various German television stations, including WDR in Cologne and Düsseldorf. And that's all I'm going to read right now. So that is, I mean, this, this, he is an amazing journalist. And if you go and look at his YouTube videos, as I mentioned, just start from three years ago and work your way up to the present reporting that he's doing on Tim Ballard. Um, this is a book that he wrote. He was the journalist that broke the story about um, Dallin, or Paul H. Dunn. Now, I'm old enough to remember Paul H. Dunn. In fact, I have a little, uh, a little brother. He's uh, my uh, half-brother from my mom's second marriage. And he's eight years younger than I am. And he worshipped uh, Paul Dunn. He even made a comment at one time that when he grew up, he wanted to be just like Paul Dunn. And so um, Lynn Packer actually is the one that broke the story that, that Paul Dunn was lying, that all of his faith promoting stories that he was telling in church, that none of them were true. His stories of his service in World War II, that he played professional baseball, just all kinds of stories uh, that everything he said was, was a lie. And um, it was, you know, so he, this this man does not put up. In fact, not don't just stop with Tim Ballard. OK, go on to his um, um, his his YouTube about the uh, attorney general in Utah. Uh, golly, yeah. Who's the current the current attorney general in Utah? 
I can't remember. It just blew. I should have written it down. Anyway, he um, he broke. He has a whole thing on the lies that he's told and his uh, companionship with Tim Ballard. They just go hand in hand because they're both liars and they're fraudsters. And he reveals it. And it's just absolutely amazing. I love this quote. It takes a lot of truth to gain trust, but just one lie to lose it all. So anyway. So, all right. I think we're done with that. Uh, by the way, these are the three women that spoke um, in conference. I just wanted to highlight that. Um, I didn't really enjoy Amy Wright's talk. It was a little bit typical Relief Society, baby voice, a little bit of emotion. Nah, nah, nah. Um, Tamra um, Runya and Emily Freeman, their talks were really good. Really, I mean, they're really good. They were they were very nice to listen to. So I just wanted to bring that up that uh, out of the whole 10 hours, these are the three women that spoke. And you know what? The uh, Tamara and or Tamara, I think it is, and Emily, um, you know, talks like that. We should hear more of more women talks like um, Amy's. We don't need any more. If that's if we're going to have more women speaking, but that's what we're listening to. We don't need to listen to that. So that's, uh, I just wanted to throw that in there. So, all right, let's get that out of here. So let's start right away with brother, uh, brother Lynn Packer. Now he has been excommunicated from the church, of course. Um, but let's, I'm just going to play it, play uh, his YouTube and we're going to talk about it. Okay. Because it's just so amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Book, Lying for the Lord, the Paul H. Dunn stories, deals with the issue of Mormon fraud. Paul Dunn is seen here with the Osmond family cutting the ribbon for a project connected to what was then the largest fraud in Utah history. The two top promoters were eventually convicted for fraud. The Mormon church itself has raised a fraud question that goes to the heart of the most defining event in its history. Former church president Gordon Hinckley appearing on 60 Minutes said, we declare without equivocation that God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, appeared in person to the boy Joseph Smith. Our whole strength rests on the validity of that vision. It either occurred or it did not occur. If it did not, then his work is a fraud. The Mormon Ward House, where I grew up, I was baptized there and left for my mission there, had a stained glass window of the first vision. I'd looked at it, thought about it for countless hours over the years. It depicts the canonized version of the event, but only recently church authorities acknowledged there are at least three other versions. How does that impact President Hinckley's fraud statement? Church leaders at all levels have been fraud victims. As an example, scams and worse perpetrated by John Bennett, Mark Hoffman, and Ted Bundy. Bennett, in the 1840s, was a member of the LDS First Presidency, mayor of Nauvoo, Illinois, major general of the Nauvoo Legion, and chancellor of Nauvoo University. Among many other indiscretions, Bennett ran a diploma mill by conferring fake degrees for money. He had fooled even the church's president, Joseph Smith. Mark Hoffman committed an elaborate historical documents fraud that deceived leaders at the very top. He committed two murders in an attempt to cover up his crimes. Here I'm talking to him during a break in a court hearing. I covered it as a reporter. The full extent of his document fraud never came to light. Ted Bundy was a serial killer who murdered more than 30 women. As a reporter, I covered his first trial 
after which he escaped and continued his murder spree. Missionaries baptized Bundy right in the middle of the killings. Those missionaries attended that first trial in his support. Mormon members are both perpetrators and victims of the fraud epidemic that continues to plague the church. Members are both wolves and sheep. In the late 1800s, the King of Confidence men coined the phrase, there's a sucker born every minute. And it also includes the phrase, and two to take him, that is uh, two swindlers. Today, there's no shortage of LDS con men and thousands, if not possibly tens of thousands of potential Mormon suckers. I know, it's baffling. How can an organization that claims to be the only true church where honesty and discernment among its members should be much better than average, or at the very least be average, how taken as a whole could their ethical conduct and ability to tell the difference between right and wrong be worse than average? In 1982, one of the church's general authorities, Hugh Pinnock, gave a speech about the problem. He gave it as the fraud I talked about in my book was being widely covered by the press. In his speech, he said, years ago, no one would have believed Utah would be labeled the scam capital of the world. It's bizarre, but it's true. Elder Pinnock called Utah's white collar fraud crime an overwhelming embarrassment. And then four years later, Pinnock himself was victimized in the Mark Hoffman documents fraud. News stories across the country chronicled how Hoffman had conned top LDS leaders including Pinnock. In 1983, this was among many similar stories that were widely disseminated about swindlers finding a haven in Utah. It quoted Utah's U.S. Attorney Brent Ward and the state's Attorney General Dave Wilkinson, both who were Mormons, dubbing Utah the fraud capital of the world. So what are some of the common types of frauds perpetrated by Mormon con artists on Mormons and non-Mormons? Here are a few categories where fraud often occurs, often called uh, white collar fraud or affinity fraud. One is cold calling that involves telemarketing and door to door, and you could add the internet to that, verbal and written communications that are made selling legitimate or illegitimate products, multi-level marketing, mortgages, uh, doing home loans, and uh, investments, stocks, and could be investments in things like uh, real estate. Penny stock fraud began uh, mostly in the 40s. It's a form of securities fraud involving over-the-counter uh, pink sheet transactions, publicly traded companies where the stock sells for less than $5 a share. It really began with uranium stocks that sold for pennies a share, like I said, in the 40s and it established Utah as the fraud capital of America. Ponzi or pyramid schemes is uh, where really high rates of return are promised with little or no risk to investors. They generate returns for early investors by acquiring more and more new investors. Uh, so it sort of uh, forms the shape of a pyramid where the new investors are paying the original investors. Multi-level marketing, MLM, it's also known as Mormons losing money, where MLM promoters sell products and distributorships and recruit downline distributors. 
This also forms the shape of a pyramid. Distributors are paid for their own product sales and the recruiters' sales, so money moves up the organization. Now, these can be legal or illegal, and it's not the same as the investment type pyramid schemes. MLM products, such as nutritional supplements and anti-aging creams, are almost always overpriced and overhyped. Fraud occurs if misrepresentations are made. Door-to-door -door direct sales cold calling sell anything like pest control, scriptures, alarm systems, solar panels, and uh, it's very similar to missionaries tracting and knocking on doors. Door-to-door uh, -door sales are illegal if false statements are made. Telemarketing, also called outbound cold calling, that is the caller does not know they're getting a call. The Deseret News calls it a high-growth Utah industry. Utah's Division of Consumer Protection calls the phone an effective tool to defraud innocent consumers. Telemarketers troll for the lonely, gullible, and elderly. Laws prohibit making false statements, but perhaps every pitch, I know every call I get, involves some sort of fraudulent statement. Communications fraud, this is a Utah law, it's lying to sell either legitimate or illegitimate investments, products, and services. Could be miracle health cures, insurance, diet plans, nutritional supplements, automobiles. Why is Utah an epicenter for get-rich-quick schemes? Is it in Mormons' DNA? The ever-increasing number of Mormons who commit fraud and are victimized by fraud suggests there could be something in the LDS Church's DNA that fosters a get-rich-quick mentality. Let's look at fraud victim traits. This is for any type of fraud victim. They're usually trusting, naive, greedy, desperate, easily persuaded, less inclined to admit they've been victimized, quite often with extreme religious views, educated, more likely male than female, impulsive, and some of them can even be dishonest. Now here are some of the swindler's traits, and these are just general. Superficial charm, pathological liar, inflated view of self-worth, conning, manipulative, lacks empathy, lacks guilt, won't accept responsibility, pride in getting away with crimes, and seeks power. It could be any one or a combination of those, but almost always the swindler is a psychopath. Now, what about some swindler traits that may be unique to Mormonism? One or more of these. A return missionary, a temple recommend holder, has a church calling, such as Sunday school teacher, elders quorum president, bishop, stake president, and even higher. Most are also likely psychopathic predators. Is there a greater proportion of psychopaths among Mormons? My guess is no. About 1% to 3% of the general male population is psychopathic. A lower percentage of women are. 
And this is divided among con artists, serial rapists, and serial killers and the like. Is there a greater proportion of psychopaths among Mormon priesthood leaders? My guess is there probably is. Maybe as high as 4%, 5% could be psychopathic. And how could that be? The, it's more leaders than the general church population. Well, maybe some clues come from Robert Hare, who's an expert and wrote the book, Snakes in Suits. He said affinity groups are particularly attractive to psychopaths because of the collective trust the members of these groups have in one another. Like all predators, psychopaths go where the action is, which means positions and organizations that afford them the opportunity to obtain power, control, and status. Okay, I just want to come on here. Um, let me see if I can back that up a little bit because I want to, I want to repeat that. Um, Lynn Packer also covered Ted Bundy's case. And I don't know if any of you know that Ted Bundy was actually baptized into the church and he got involved in the young single adult program. And so when you're talking about psychopaths having uh, getting involved in affinity groups, Ted Bundy is a perfect example. And he, Ted, um, Lynn mentioned that at the trial of Ted Bundy, that there were a couple of people sitting behind him and they tapped him on the shoulder and they said, why are you only writing negative things about this good man? And he said, well, right now I'm covering the, the trial and uh, now they're going, the prosecution is the one that's uh, speaking. So that's what I'm talking about. But why do you think he's a good man? And these two guys said, well, because we're the people that baptized him. And so there again, there was this, you know, no, we, you know, I'm the bishop, I'm the missionaries. Uh, we're the people that baptized. There's no way that this kind man could be a serial killer. Um, because, you know, we looked into his eyes, we saw his countenance, we know that he's a good man. He married um, and was a stepfather to someone that he met, I believe, in one of these. I read his, I read the whole Ted Bundy thing a few years ago, and he married this woman. And I think he really was kind of a good husband and a good stepfather to this, uh, this girl. And then he just killed a lot of people. So anyway, so I just want to um, kind of go back a little bit. Um, I like where he says, is there a greater proportion of psychopaths among Mormons? My guess is no. And then he says, um, is there a greater proportion of psychopaths among Mormon priesthood leaders? My guess is yes. And then he goes on to say affinity groups are particularly, um, let's see if I can catch that here. It's very touchy, particularly because of the collective trust that members of these groups have in one another. And uh, like all predators, psychopaths go where the action is, which means positions and organizations. And so I, I just think that's really important. So I think now that we're looking into the Tim Ballard thing, um, I mean, how many people donated to him? And we're going to talk a little bit about that and how many people supported him. I was just listening to a podcast today, Elon Musk. So I, you know, I mean, I need to stop shaming the little people that contributed to um, OUR because Elon Musk was on his team. He, he jumped on the railroad. So, I mean, he deceived a lot of people. I, but I just, you now, ladies, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But I feel as though if there were more women on these boards of directors 
or any of these companies or uh, maybe even on the 12 apostles, if six of them were women, there would be a little bit more discernment in real discernment, because I think women can see through a more bullshit and men are more impressed with wealth and power. And so they don't do the vetting that they need to do. But regardless, let's go on. Action is, which means positions and organizations that afford them the opportunity to obtain power, control and status. Joe Navarro, a former FBI agent and a fraud expert, wrote that, and by the way, he prefers the term predators over psychopaths. Predators embed themselves in religious organizations. They seek to be part of the clergy. In other words, they seek position within the church. Organizations provide a convenient base where predators can prey on others for financial gain. Membership gives legitimacy. He even cites uh, Warren Jeffs as an example uh, with sexual, sexual abuse of children in the name of God. He continues, if the predator becomes a leader within the church or religious group, then he or she is immediately cloaked with power and authority. Most people still have a high respect for their church leaders and are willing to give them greater latitude and the benefit of the doubt said no religion or sect screens for psychopathy. Organizations often try to handle negative things in-house to avoid bad publicity, so they're reluctant to report even gross criminal misconduct on the part of predators in their midst. And that's really true of Mormonism, has been my experience as a reporter. Now, so why could there be more fraud among Mormons than other churches that these two experts talked about? Well, one is emphasis on members' decision-making by feeling, that is being led by the spirit rather than by thinking things through. Another is an inordinate reverence for leaders. Mormon doctrine has it the leaders at all levels are chosen and directed by God. And a Utah white collar fraud attorney said, many here in Utah focus more on the person than the nature of the investment. They think so-and-so is a great person or such a good member of the church, so the investment he is pitching must be great too. Another reason could be that the rank-and-file clergy, bishops and such, are part-time. They're not paid. Many also engage in business. This is unlike uh, many other religions. And top LDS leaders are paid, and they are paid clergy, but many came out of business ranks and continue to engage in church-owned ventures. And then there's the sort of inbred leadership selection that's biased in favor of businessmen. For example, a farmer is less likely to engage fellow Mormons in a business fraud. Now, Brigham Young in 1859 may have been described or may have been describing these sort of wolves in sheep's clothing. He said, we have the best and the worst. Why the worst? Because the devil prompts men and women of the meanest and lowest grade to embrace the gospel and get a foothold in the kingdom of God to destroy it. The worst example in 1875 after his death is just one person, a Norwegian convert and his family migrated to Utah, but decided not to stay. Okay, I'm going to go um, and comment on that. Uh, I mean, 
I don't know. I can't remember if Lynn talks about, but let's not quote Brigham Young. I mean, talk about fraud. I mean, the money, uh, I think he does go on towards the end and talk about the uh, amount of debt that the church was in, but the amount of wealth that Brigham Young had because he was totally uh, mixing church with his own personal income. And um, he had all these crazy ideas of, in fact, connected to the Willie Martin handcart company was he decided to buy a steam engine. He, he wanted a steam engine. He thought that they would be able to put the, a steam engine on um, salt, the salt Lake and um, give people rides and they could make money. So he, he sent, um, it wasn't Heber Kimball. I forget who he sent to buy a steam engine. And it was a fiasco from the very beginning, trying to get this huge, heavy machine to Utah from, I think they had to buy it like in New Orleans or something like that and get it across the plains. And he was like, I don't care how you have to do it. I don't care how much it costs. I want that steam engine. And there were efforts that were made to get that steam engine to Salt Lake over getting a rescue program to the Willie Martin handcart company. So, um, I mean, the silk industry, the wine industry that Brigham Young had, there was so much money that was just thrown away because he didn't know what he was doing. And, and it was fraud. He was taking money from tithe payers, uh, beautiful people that had migrated from Europe that, that were just looking for a better life. And, and he made them pay them back from the uh, perpetual uh, immigration fund. And he was horrible. So I don't even, I don't even want his name mentioned, but let me fast forward through this a little bit and see if I can um, get to some other really good parts here. Let's see where we're going here. Oop, come on, baby, move along. Nope. All right, maybe I have to push play. Let's let's just go on. We'll just go on here. And here's what he said. Instead of honesty, I found dishonesty and swindlers. That's and the Lord will pour out temporal blessings upon you and great once today. It could explain the incongruity why many Mormons are among some of the best people in the world, and yet others are among some of the worst. Why so many of those worst Mormons engage in so much uh, sleaze and fraud. Okay, so I'm going to stop this um, right here because he's going to go on and talk about um, tithing. And Neil Anderson was one of the speakers at conference this weekend, and he talked and he spoke about. It. And one of the things that infuriated me with Neil Anderson's talk was he had the gall, just the absolute gall, to give as an example of faith the fact that this uh, huge fire that had happened, I believe in Chile, um, go back and listen to the story. I, I, I'm sure I'm not getting all my facts correct, but there was a bakery that what, that survived the fire, even though all the other businesses around the area were absolutely flattened and just destroyed by this fire. There was a bakery that survived and the little boy, the, the, uh, the little boy of the man that owned the bakery, he said, well, that's because you paid your tithing and you gave away free food and the Lord blessed you. And I heard the same crap about Hawaii. Um, and I heard the same thing. And I remember, and this was years ago, you guys remember Columbine, right? This is what, 2000, gosh, when was Columbine? Was it before 2000? 2001, 2002, I'll look it up. But um, I remember my mother actually telling me the story 
of some kids who had, they were supposed to go to seminary and then they were going to go to school, but they just really felt like they needed to stay home that day. And so they survived the Columbine shooting because they were inspired to stay home. And if any of you, I mean, it's stories like that. You have to read, um, I'll see if I can find it. But I read a book, I gave a talk at Sunstone and it was about how um, bad things happen to good people. And this, this, this weird idea that you will be blessed you know, above others, the prosperity gospel, you will be blessed above others if you pay your tithing, that you will be rewarded. There, and it goes along with this whole prosperity gospel. The idea that everything happens for a reason, that you were spared by God, that you were in a car accident, but God saved you, but the neighbor down the street lost their 16-year-old son in a car accident because he was needed on the other side. It, I, the, the pain and the suffering that goes on because of this kind of mentality is just horrendous. So he's going to go around and talk a little bit about that. There could be a, a doctrine factor involved here. Want to talk about prosperity gospel, tithing as a financial investment. President Heber J. Grant said, I want to say to you, if you will be honest with the Lord, paying your tithing and keeping his commandments, he will not only bless you with the light and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and so here comes the prosperity gospel part of it, but you will also be blessed in dollars and cents. You will be enabled to pay your debts and the Lord will pour out temporal blessings upon you in great abundance. Again, depicting God as a investment banker. Now, just to talk a little bit about that, I don't know how many of you, we have been in some really amazing, really, I don't think we've been, there was only one ward that we were in. And it was right after, um, we actually had a, a, a horrible financial setback. And I was pregnant with our sixth child and we lost our house. It was 2008 during the housing crisis. And, you know, when interest rates were 12% or 14%. And um, we had, um, you know, we just got to, we had taken a second mortgage out on our home and then interest rates were like 12 and 13%. And then my husband took a pay cut at work to actually move up in the company. And we couldn't make our house payments anymore. And it ended up being a wise decision, of course, my husband ended up owning the company, but we suffered. We lost our house and we ended up moving to Northeast Portland. Um, and I lost the baby. I had a miscarriage. And um, and then I got pregnant again and um, probably a little too quickly. And I actually had someone say to me, um, didn't your doctor tell you that you should probably wait a few months before you get pregnant again? And I'm like, he might have, but I am following the instructions to multiply and replenish the earth. So I got to keep going. So I got pregnant like a month after I miscarried. And then that baby ended up being born with multiple um, physical uh, problems and was born with brain damage. And we took care of him for 37 years before he passed away last year. But regardless, it was a really uh, a, quite a time in our life. And um, but that and we moved into a downtown ward, which had a lot of stuff going on. But other than that, every ward that we've ever been in has been absolutely phenomenal. And we've known people that have struggled, struggled financially, really struggled to make ends meet. And they were faithful temple going tithe paying people. So this whole idea that you will be 
uh, just abundance will just rain from heaven if you pay your tithing is such a false teaching. And it's it really it causes a lot of depression and um, and a confusion for people. So I just wanted to throw that in there. President Lorenzo Snow said poverty exists among the Latter-day Saints and always will exist until we obey the law of tithing. As you obey this law, the Lord will bless you both spiritually and temporally. Just another connection. When people pay their tithing faithfully, he helps them find a way out of their financial problems and difficulties. Then General Authority David Bednard said, I promise that as you and I keep the law of tithing, the windows of heaven will be opened and spiritual and temporal blessings will be poured out such that there shall not be room enough to receive them. Keith Woodwell is director of the Utah Securities Division. That's the division that handles, uh, deals with a lot of white collar fraud in Utah. He said, there's this notion that if you pay your tithing and do what you're supposed to do, the windows of heaven will be open to you and God will pour you out a blessing such that there's not enough room to receive it. He said, so it's very easy for someone who is fraud is their motive to use that doctrine and say, look, you're a member in good standing and you pay your tithing and you're entitled to be blessed, of course, with money. Mormon financial fraud. It was there in the very beginning. Okay, I have to stop. I have to stop right here. I love that he's going to go back and just talk about, I mean, as you can see, between Lorenzo Snow to David Bednar to Neil Anderson yesterday, they're telling the same story. And I think it's so ironic that Lynn Packard, not, as I mentioned, this podcast was done uh, quite a few years ago, two or three years ago. And so I can't even, you know, no mention because it hasn't come to light yet that the church was just fined for 13 shell companies with securities fraud. So, I mean, the, here we, he's going to start from the very beginning, but as you're listening to him talk about this, I want you to remember that the church was fined just a few months ago with security fraud. So let's just, just keep that in mind as you're listening. Just seven years after the church was formed, a Kirtland, Ohio bank became its first major fraud. It began as an illegal bank, so it went downhill from there. Sidney Rigdon was its president. Joseph Smith was the cashier. It failed within a year. Many church leaders and bankrupted members quit the church, and Joseph Smith was charged uh, with violating state banking laws and fled to Missouri. As Mormons moved to Nauvoo, there was money to be made and lost in real estate. I just want to throw in here, too, that when Joseph Smith fled, notice he said fled to Missouri to get away from being um, arrested for fraud, um, that he, there were a lot of men that had positions of power in Missouri. And when Joseph Smith arrived, he was like, oh, I'm here now, taking over. Uh, we might have to move a few people around because uh, you're no longer in charge. I'm in charge caused a lot of people to leave the church and there was a lot of stuff going on in Missouri. So just a little bit of history you might want to look into. Adventures. Just prior to Joseph Smith's assassination in 1844, the anti-Mormon newspaper, the Nauvoo Expositor, alleged Mormon leaders were practicing polygamy and also alleged there was land fraud. 
We do not believe that monies and properties collected have been applied as the donors expected, but have been used for speculative purposes by Joseph to gull the saints, that is, cheat the saints, by buying the lands in the vicinity and selling again at tenfold advance. Okay, I'm just going to stop again. Uh, go and listen to Lindsay Hansen Park's interview, the, the latest one that she did with John DeLynn. And they talk a little bit about the um, land fraud, the land deals that were made, he, the land that he gave um, uh, polygamous wives. And after he was shot, then Emma Smith, uh, Joseph uh, Brigham Young tried to take the land back. And she was like, no way, Jose, this is the only thing I've got. And it's very interesting, a new kind of a side sideways looking at uh, Emma Smith and what she had to do to protect her family, the relationship she had with uh, Brigham Young. And uh, it's very, very interesting. But yeah, the, a lot of land fraud, uh, Missouri, you know, they don't talk about this. Another myth. They don't talk about this when they're talking about the persecution of the saints in Missouri. A lot of it was due to the land fraud that was going on. They were actually given a county. I believe it was um, Caldwell County. They were given the county. They're like, almost like they were giving the indigenous people reservations. They're like, look, we'll give you Caldwell County if you could just stay there and um, don't go anywhere else. Just stay. You just stay here, do your Mormon thing, and we'll leave you alone. And of course, Joseph Smith was like, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then he was like, yeah, we're not doing that. And moved out outside of the, of the county and started infiltrating other areas. And there were just so many things involved that they don't tell you about. And, and so the myth of persecution continues. And a lot of the money thing goes into the whole idea of persecution, like they suffered because they were just, you know, kind of like Tim Ballard did when he claimed that, you know, all of this was persecution because of the good that he was trying to do it's the same thing. So let's let's go on. Let's go on. Joseph Smith died shortly thereafter. This allegation was never proven in court. Joseph Smith's successor, Brigham Young, like Smith, mixed the church's funds with his personal money. Brigham Young and other church authorities, when the need required it, drew on the tithing resources of the church and at a later date repaid part or all of the obligation in money, property, or services. No interest seems to have been paid for the use of these funds. That's a statement by a former uh, Mormon uh, historian, and he's actually sort of sugarcoating it. Another historian wrote, it was finally determined that his estate was worth approximately $1.6 million, but obligations of more than a million dollars to the church. If this happened today, it probably would be uh, counted as uh, fraud. A few years after Brigham Young's death, an Ogden, Utah bank, whose stock was largely owned by LDS general authorities, was infested with fraud. Apostle Abraham H. Cannon was the majority stockholder and Apostle Joseph F. Smith, director and past president. The bank was plagued with fraudulent loans, accounting fraud, embezzlement, and violation of banking laws. The crimes were covered up and the bank was bailed out by Apostle Heber J. Grant, who saw investors and used church funds for the bailout. Isn't that amazing? 1920, used church funds for the bailout, was accused of fraud. And now they use church funds to build City Creek 
and to what was the thing that a huntsman is now being able to go against? They use tithing funds for it wasn't City Creek. Was it City Creek? Maybe. I know they went back and they threw one of them out and they kept the other one. But same thing. Fraud. 2022, 2023, 1920s, same thing. Fraud, apostles, prophets, all of these people, investment fraud, it's still going on. Twenty Over 20 years, uh, they were setting up the shell companies and they're still going, oh, we didn't know. Well, this was 1920. Obviously, they haven't learned anything. So let's go on. Here's another uh, fraud example. And there's a lot of them. I'm just giving a, a few. In this particular case, with the Deseret Mortuary Stock Fraud, promoters who included the brother of Apostle George Albert Smith were convicted for fraud. George Albert Smith, who later was president of the church, was also a company director, and he paid fees for the attorney, Henry D. Moyle, who later became an apostle. And Hubie Brown, who later also became an apostle, had set up the stock offering and helped solicit investor funds. One investor who testified at the, uh, the trial of the, of the swindlers said, they told me the church is behind it. They told me I would make a million dollars out of the 30,000 that he invested. They told me Apostle Albert Smith was back of this. Okay, I just, I'm going to stop you for a second here. Um, this is not new as well. Um, we threw out, I mean, my husband and I have been married for 49 years. We've lived in uh, multiple wards and there have been people that have lost their life savings, insurance fraud, uh, beneficial life fraud, um, all kinds of investments. In fact, my parents were even scammed. Uh, there was a man that was uh, selling his property. He, he had some property in Washington state. And um, I remember, and I'm young, right? I'm like a young mom. And I'm, my parents are so excited because they're going to buy this house with this land. And my mom had, has always wanted to have acreage. And so they, um, this guy was in their ward and he's a temple attender and he's just this, you know, great guy. And so they, we all drive out to see the house that they have bought from this guy. And I'm sitting in the back seat of the car and the kids are, you know, even in the far, farther back. And my dad's in the front seat, my mom's sitting next to me. And this guy's talking about the property and he's saying, you know, that's the, the water source is a well and we're having a little bit of problem, but it's no big deal and blah, blah, blah. And I remember going water, I'm thinking to my head and I was probably in my late thirties. Okay. So I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not um, an expert in, in, in any way, but I remember thinking that seems to be a big problem. A well, if that's your only source of water, that's a big problem. And so my parents, they closed on the house. They were actually living in Missouri at the time, but they wanted to buy this home. This was going to be their retirement home. And so they closed on the property and lo and behold, the well was completely dry and they spent thousands of dollars having to redig a well. And I just remember saying, I just knew this guy was lying. I knew he was lying, but my parents believed him because he was an active member of their ward. So how could he be lying to them? How could he be a swindler, which he was? And I, I've heard this so many times. I mean, I remember going over to their house and um, my mom, my mom had a plumber 
that was over at the house. And she said, oh, Renee, meet John. John's a member of the church. And I was like, so what? I mean, what, is, what does that mean? That he's going to give you your plumbing for free or that he's going to do the best plumbing job you've ever had? But this was, I mean, my mom is 91. This was the kind of, this, these are the kind of people that these swindlers take advantage of. And they use their activity in the church to take advantage of these trusting people. And it goes on all the time. I worked in the temple with a lot of them. It's pathetic, really. So let's go on. Another was the guarantee trust deed investment scam uh, in the 1960s. It was highly advertised and guaranteed double bank interest rates. General Authority Marion D. Hanks was a director and he appeared in newspaper ads. Radio spots were voiced by a prominent KSL radio announcer, KSL uh, uh, radio being owned by the church, and two principals were convicted for securities fraud. American Ranch and Recreation and NAFSAT were actually two frauds uh, uh, committed by Snell and Johnson, and he was convicted in 1974 and 1982. Both involved LDS general authorities. One was Sterling W. Sill, the recreation fraud, and the other was Thomas Fyans, the NAVSAT or the satellite navigation uh, technology fraud. Okay, I'm going to move this up a little bit. Um, okay, so, okay, he's going to go on here and talk about how LDS missionaries are just, I mean, they've been trained to do door-to-door -door cold calling and how that comes in so handy for multi-level marketing. He's going to talk about um, how they prey on the elderly, the vulnerable, trusting, easily deceived. They have to use deception to get someone to pay more for something they don't need or could buy substantially cheaper. Uh, he's going to talk about the pest control and uh, he actually names, um, and then he talks a lot about uh, Mitt Romney and his Vivint connection and where Vivint is and what they're doing. And let's, let's go here and listen to this. Three of them were like me and the rest lied on almost all of their sales. I know because I watched them do it. Just recently, the Better Business Bureau put out an alert. It says with the summer door knocking season set to begin, we're warning Let me go back a little bit to make sure that we got this because- added credibility. Eagle became a pattern and soon companies popped up to sell products and services door to door following the model and selling things like home alarm systems and pest control. Now here's a comment from a pest control uh, company that does not sell door to door describing the competition. In the 90s, Utah became the epicenter of a tidal wave of door to door pest control salesmen. Sales companies capitalizing on Utah's population of highly trained return LDS missionaries hired on Moss and sent them across the country selling door to door. What followed was an abundance of new startup pest control companies, each focused on door to door sales. There has to be more pest control salesmen per square foot in Utah than in any other place in the world. Then there's the Vivint Home Alarm example. It's now the name of the home for the Utah Jazz Pro basketball team. Vivint has now become the superstar of Utah County door-to-door -door sales companies. Uh, they began with home alarms and then expanded to solar and home automation. In 2012, the Blackstone Group bought Vivint for $2 billion. 
And in 2014, Vivint Solar went public on the New York Stock Exchange with the ticker symbol VSLR. Mitt Romney has connections to Vivint. He cut the ribbon a few years ago for its new headquarters. His former chief of staff, Alex Dunn, as chief of staff when he was uh, governor, is now Vivint's president, making $2.2 million a year. And Romney's Solomare Capital, very recently, was part of a $100 million investment in Vivint. Then there's the Vivint sleaze factor. The Vivint sales staff has left many customer complaints and regulatory warnings strewn along its path. Some customers referred to the missionary-like salespeople as slugs, crooks, little liars, and drones. One former employee said he only sold 70 systems one summer. This is what he said, because I actually was truthful to people I sold to. And he went on to say, as for the 30 people in the office, I witnessed three of them were like me, and the rest lied on almost all of their sales. I know because I watched them do it. Okay, so we live, uh, currently we have a summer home here in Utah. Uh, the rest of the time we live in Arizona. And we are surrounded by these multi-level marketing companies. Unique is right down the street. doTERRA is right down the street. We live right near the Silicon Slopes. And um, they're just all over the place. And from what I understand, Utah has a fabulous tax program for multi-level marketing and a lot of these programs. And the reason why is because the owners of these companies are members of the church. Therefore, they pay tithing. So it is a financial gain for these multi-level marketing businesses. And we all know where, let's see if we can speed up here and find the multi-level marketing section that Lynn is covering, uh, how only the very top 1% earn any money whatsoever with multi-level marketing, biggest scam in the world. And you've got doTERRA, you've got, um, I think he talks a little bit about Mona V. I want to show you a little bit about, let me see if I can, let me, let me, let me find the, the information and then I'll show you something. So let's go back here and then let's go here and let's see if we can fire just recently. Okay. Okay. That makes unproven alleged uh, false claims like it's anti-inflammatory, antifungal, antiviral, and anti-cancer. MLM is really a colossal cancer on the state and on the Mormon church, but it generates huge tax and tithing revenues. It's become accepted by LDS authorities, unlike more than 100 years ago, and safeguarded by Utah's Mormon-dominated legislature and congressional delegation. MLM has victimizers and victims. More than 95% of all MLM downliners, the salespeople downline, make no money, some even lose money. Downliners flush big bucks down the MLM toilet. Well, actually they're not flushed down the toilet. They go to the 1% at the top of the pyramid and many of them make fabulous amounts of money. It's made many, many millionaires in the state of Utah. And customers often pay for products that are vastly overpriced and overhyped. Okay, so let me stop that right there. How many of you have watched the documentary on LuLaRue? Perfect example. And the sad thing is, even though they were 
find and they had this horrible documentary out there, I think they're still in business. But I remember sitting in church and this was, um, okay, let me think, 5, 10, maybe 12 years ago, I could be off. But I remember sitting in church and I remember thinking, where are these women getting these dresses? They're all dressed the same, except for they're like different colors, but the cut is the same. Where where are they getting them? And I, I mean, I'm a regular Costco shopper, right? I thought they're not getting them from Costco. And uh, and then I got invited to a party and I was like, oh, it's a multi-level marketing program. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know that it was started by uh, members of the church. And But if you have not watched the Lou LaRue documentary, when you're done watching this, don't do it right now, but when you're done watching this, go and watch that. And it totally follows exactly what Lynn Packer is talking about. Now, he's going to mention another multi-level marketing. Let me show you this. Let me move on here. Doop, 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 doop. Oh, we'll go back to that one. Okay, how many of you have heard of Mona V? I was introduced to this by, um, I, was, I was going to a... Um, where did I meet this guy? He was an exercise. He, he owned a, an exercise class and I actually hired him to be a personal trainer to come over to the home and work with my husband and me. And um, so he introduced me to this Mona V and I'm working out. I'm like, Hey, that sounds great. Well, I want you to look. And I think he talks a little bit about the Mona V. I want you to look at the cost. Let me see if I can get this a little bigger. Okay. $130 for four bottles. And as you can see, it is, um, you know, kind of similar to like a, um, a wine bottle. So it basically has four servings, five servings in a bottle and $130. So that works out to be, I think they advertise it as $5 a serving or something like that. And I can't remember if the serving is a half a cup or a shot. I can't even remember. I love the taste of it. And um, so it was it was the when the acai berry first came out, I don't know if any of you remember that, but the acai berry was the new miracle that and now you've got acai bowls all over the place, all the health places you can get an acai bowl. But this was when, oh, this acai fruit is going to saw it's going to cure cancer. It's going to help your joints. It's going to help arthritis. It's going to do blah, blah, blah. And so it says helps helps support joint mobility and flexibility, helps to maintain a healthy range of motion. Well, it has glucosamine in it. So basically you're paying, you know, $32 for a bottle of glucosamine that you can just get something at Costco, which is the same thing. But he's going to talk a little bit about that. So, um, but I bought it. I bought it from this guy. I like the taste of it. Uh, my dad had just been diagnosed with triple bypass surgery. So he started drinking it for heart health. Because, of course, it has, um, you know, vitamins A, C and E to help protect against um, oxidation. And I mean, it's an absolute it's one of, a perfect example of this cure all. And of course, it was a scam. And, and uh, so there we are. So let's 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 go back. Here we go. Neutralite was really the beginning of uh, multi-level marketing. And it began. I'm going to skip past that a little bit. Going to go back to test where you would send in your urine and uh, uh, then they would tell you what vitamins you needed to take care of deficiencies. It was all part of the scheme. 
Trump appeared on David Letterman and was asked, what would you do if you lost everything and had to start over from scratch? Trump said, I would find a good network marketing company and get to work. And I think that says a lot about Trump and a lot about MLM. Utah has become an MLM world headquarters. Here are some of the headlines, how Utah became a bizarre, blissful epicenter for get-rich-quick schemes. Uh, a Utah television station uh, uh, named their series Multi-Level Mecca, Utah. I'm going to skip past that a little bit and move on. Uh, oh, this uh, is fun. Meeting him in church. Said the son of Enzio Busha came to my ward one time stood up in priesthood meeting and tried to recruit us to Tahitian Noni Jews. It was really awkward. New Skin is really Utah's archetyped MLM venture. It sells uh, and markets a variety, a, a large variety of products. Okay. I don't know if I can keep watching. You guys, I'm going to let you finish. I, 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 want, I want you to find this on YouTube and finish watching this. What New Skin did going into China, um, the the backing that they had of apostles and prophets and people in the church. Um, but like they said, the money, the revenue that it brings into Utah and then the tithing dollars that it brings in. If you want to see a huge multi-level marketing scam, it's called the Mormon church. OK, and when they're asking for tithing dollars, there you go. It's you know, it's perfect pyramid scheme. So I'm going to leave it at that. Let me just show you a little bit of this because um, there are also on YouTube recordings of Tim Ballard speaking at doTERRA, which is a multi-level marketing. It's your essential oil company. Um, and he also spoke at a, a doctor's convention. He spoke at New Skin. He's spoken at a lot of these uh, um, multi-level marketing companies invested in him. So I want you to show a little bit of Tim in action. All right. We now have the privilege of welcoming to the stage a remarkable individual who's no stranger to doTERRA or our conventions. He's been with us here before. A few years ago, while he was working as a special agent for the Department of Homeland Security, he discovered that there were things that the U.S. government could neither legally do nor effectively do to rescue victims of sex trafficking, especially in foreign countries. He therefore resigned from his job with the U.S. government and founded a private, non-governmental company which has become one of the most successful, if not the most successful, anti-human trafficking organizations in the world. Look at the people sitting in this auditorium, hundreds and hundreds of people that have not only been conned into a multi-level marketing program, but they have also, uh, they're now being conned about what Tim Ballard said he did. His data is completely false. His stories are false. People invested millions of dollars. That's where your money went when you bought that beautiful lavender oil, okay? It went right to Tim Ballard. Okay, here we go again. His organization is dedicated to rescuing and helping children who are survivors of human trafficking and working with local law enforcement to catch and put away the bad guys. The organization 
is Operation Underground Railroad. left the government to start Operation Underground Railroad. He actually falsified work that the government had done, claimed it as his own. And it's it's just absolutely pathetic, just in case you're not, you know, if you've been living under a rock and you're not really, let me bring this on here. There we go, there's Tim Ballard. Have you have you all seen this? This is a picture where he had a tattoo art, a, a makeup artist who did who does henna tattoos. She supposedly needed to put all of these fake tattoos on his body so that he could undercover present himself as someone that was looking for underage sex. And um, but I'm a little confused at what point. Did your undercover service need you to write this where it's written? If you want to look that up, um, let me see if I can make it a little bigger for you. Um, look this up. Find out what that means. That's uh, Spanish. Look up what it means in English and uh, ask yourself. I don't know, Tim, if you're going undercover, you're not sleeping with anybody. Um, you're not taking showers. Um, you're not soliciting sex for any reason. Were you stripping down to your underwear and that they would need to see these tattoos? And then they said, well, they had to take this picture because he was letting the henna dry. And then he would need to replicate the henna for another case that he would go on so that they would look exactly the same. I'm like, are you working with the same people? Are you working with the same children? I mean, the guys that you're buying these children from, they're not having sex with you. It's these little children that are. So what are they going to be asked? What, where were his tattoos and what did they look like? I mean, it's so, so egregious. It's so pathetic. And it just reminds me of another false story that we've, that we've heard a little bit about. So I just wanted to give you a little taste of, um, when, uh, when, when good old brother Waddell, who was on 60 minutes talking about, um, you know, the SEC companies and how they don't do anything in secret, that it's sacred and they don't call it secret. They call it confidential. And um, so he lied about the 13 shell companies and this SEC uh, investments that the church had made. And then he goes to conference. He, he lies about the Willie Martin handcart, handcart company. And then he basically um, shames everyone for having hero worship, even though nobody's allowed to stand up until the prophet stands up. Or if any of you have seen the infamous uh, podcast where uh, Brother Bud Bednar purposely sits there and waits to see what people do, his wife uh, starts to stand up, but then she realizes, oh, wait, I have to wait for the king. And so then he, very, very blatant, just patronizing, stands up and then she stands up. It's so pathetic. So he's talking about hero worship as if we don't worship 
the ground that these men walk on, even though they're lying to us and they're committing fraud. Anyway, so I will just leave you this afternoon with a few words of wisdom. All right, let's go. The temple is a place of revelation. There you are shown how to progress toward a celestial life. Are you though? There you are drawn closer to the Savior and given greater access to his power. Just want to put in here until 2019. And actually, I think it was actually another change that was made. I left the church in 2020. Uh, last time I went to the temple was right after they made those changes in 2019. So I haven't been back since they changed the temple. Was it last year they changed the ceremony again and they decided to add Jesus? They've just now added Jesus to the temple ceremony. Uh, before that, there was no mention of Jesus. So, but go on. There you are guided in solving the problems in your life, even your most perplexing problems. I don't know how he thinks that any problems are solved in the temple. I mean, um, I was a temple worker in the Portland temple for five years. And if I remember the promises and the covenants that you make, they were all about obedience to uh, giving your time, talent, and all that you possess to the church, um, obeying the commandments that are found in the scriptures, um, not having sex with anybody outside of marriage. And I don't know how, how any of those can be conflicted into a revelation. I mean, they make it out like there's some miraculous ceremony that goes on. And basically, there's five things you agree to that are all about obedience and giving everything you have to the church. So I don't know exactly what he's talking about. But if you haven't been to the temple, you might think that there's going to be some miraculous thing. But go on. The ordinances and covenants of the temple are of eternal significance. We continue to build more temples to make these sacred possibilities become a reality in each of your lives. Or we are a $250 billion corporation that needs to spend some money. Otherwise, we're really going to get in trouble. So we're just going to start uh, collecting real estate. And I think it's the number one uh, uh, private landholder in the United States. So there's that. And by the way, the temples that he announced at the end of the uh, sessions, uh, not one of them was in Ireland or Scotland. Ireland and Scotland has zero temples. Can you believe that? But we're going to build three more in Africa, but there are none in Ireland and Scotland. Crazy. Paying tithing requires faith. And it also builds faith in God and his son, Jesus Christ. So tithing doesn't have anything to do with investment. Investment. It's just about faith. And that's the only reason why you should pay. Your, we don't need your money, but you need to pay your tithing. That's the message that they gave. Choosing to live a virtuous life in a sexualized, politicized world builds faith. Spending. I don't know who's coaching him, but his facial expressions do not really match the words that he's saying. And it's a little scary, actually. It's kind of, it's kind of eerie. More time in the temple builds faith. How do you get a temple recommend? Anybody? Anybody? How do we get a temple recommend? Oh, that's right. We pay our tithing. Go on. And your service and worship in the temple will help you to think celestial. There's that logo. 
The temple is a place of revelation. There you are shown how to progress toward a celestial life. I, I don't know what that means. Closer to the Savior and given greater access to his power. Uh, I don't have any power. I don't know what he's talking about. There you are guided in solving the problems in your life, even your most perplexing problems. Okay, I know there's a lot of people that go to the temple because they use it as a place of solace. They will go through the entire ceremony, the, the two-hour endowment ceremony, and then they go into the celestial room and they use that time in the celestial room to pray about something that they might have problems with. So if that's what he's talking about, uh, you can go someplace quiet and peaceful and do the same prayer somewhere else. And it's not going to cost you 10% of your income. So there's that. The ordinances and covenants of the temple are of eternal significance. We continue to build more temples to make these sacred possibilities become a reality in each of your lives. Okay. It's so funny because one of the talks that was given at conference, uh, the gentleman said, um, I think if the temples get closer to you, which by the way, one of the temples that they that they announced was going to be in Vancouver, Washington, uh, which they had purchased property years ago, like literally in the 70s. They were going to build the temple there and um, they never did. They built it in Portland instead. And what's funny is um, almost all of the people that worked in the Portland temple lived in Vancouver. And so it's going to be very interesting to see where they go with this, because if they build a temple in Vancouver, who's going to be um, manning the temple in Portland? I don't know. We'll have to see. So anyway, that's all for today. I'm going to let you go. Um, let me just see if this guy has anything else to say. For survival of the fittest, we could call agency without responsibility the Korahor principle, as we read in the book of Alma, that every man conquered according to his strength and whatsoever a man did was no crime. With negative consequences removed, you now have agency unbridled. Ooh, you think? If Satan is not successful in fully separating agency from responsibility, one of his backup schemes is to dull or minimize feelings of responsibility, what we could call the Nihor principle, also found in the book of Alma that all mankind should be saved at the last day and that they need not fear. I'm going to skip past here. Let's see what he says towards the end. Let's recap this whole thing. I discovered there is power and control in the expression, I'm sorry, mm. when it is used with love unfeigned, empathy, and not merely to excuse ourselves. In a marriage, a 50% attitude on both parts may seem logical, but only a 100% attitude on both parts closes the door to the anti-responsibility list. A final lesson this sister learned is that you cannot control the agency of another person. Only That's right. A loving mother once gave the following wise counsel to her daughter who was unhappy with a struggling marriage. She had the daughter draw a vertical line. Okay, let's let him bring this in here. Why do you suppose? Where he counsels his wayward son, Corianthony. 
What? Do ye suppose that mercy can rob justice? I say unto you, nay, not one whit. If so, God would cease to be God. O oh, my son, I desire that she should deny the justice of God no more. Do not endeavor to excuse yourself in the least point because of your sins. By I think that's a great place to end. So in conclusion, Brother Ballard did not get up and apologize. He didn't get up and say, I'm so sorry that I was deceived by Tim Ballard. I should have never invested in his company. I should have never take, taken pictures with him. I should have never given off the impression that I completely supported him and that I, I had vetted him. I'm so sorry that I did that. I apologize for any of you that have donated money to the Operation Underground Railroad. I'm sorry that we didn't look into his background any closer or we didn't try to vet any of the data that he was giving off. If we could have heard someone say, I'm so sorry that we listened to a prejudiced race, racist man for over 150 years and denied the priesthood to uh, members of the um, African-American um, people. I'm so sorry that we did that. I'm so sorry that we're treating the, our LBGTQ plus people with such um, disrespect and lack of empathy. Uh, we're so sorry that we did that. We're so sorry that we don't give women a voice in our church. Uh, I didn't hear any of that. So you, I don't know who you're talking to, but you need to go talk somewhere else. So that's all I have for today. Thank you so much for listening. And please go and find Lynn Packer and um, listen to all of his, his um podcast. They're so informative and so well done. Thank you so much.